tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Season 15, Episode 16 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. With less than two weeks to go until Christmas 2020, I think we should gather around the old Yule log and spread some Christmas fear. That is to say, we're going to be doing a No Sleep Christmas live stream on YouTube. Saturday, December 19th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's noon on the West Coast and 8 p.m. GMT, UTC, Zulu Time, or whatever you choose to call it. We'll do a Christmas story, and many of the No Sleep team will join us for some festive fan fun. So join us, if you dare, at youtube.com slash official. And we'll deck the halls, slay the ride, and run over Grandma with a reindeer. Because, after all, all we want for Christmas is you. And if horror stories are on your Christmas list this year, you're in luck. We have some presents for you, ready to unwrap. Now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we meet a writer who's had his dream come true. His book has been accepted to be published by a prestigious publishing house. But as we learn from author Lauren Stoker, the writer has to look after all the contracts and paperwork, and that can be rather daunting. I join Mike Delgadio and Nicole Doolin in performing this tale. So make sure everything is in good order before you sign away the rights to your submission. The door to the waiting room opened silently on its pneumatic hinges, offering a glimpse of the inner sanctum beyond, and a tall, lean woman of indeterminate age entered. The publishing house lobby was one of those scarily modern creations. Brushed stainless steel, onyx moldings, tortured metal sculptures, acres of gleaming black tile. You know the look. The kind of decor that shouts, make yourself uncomfortable. I watched as the woman scanned our motley group dithering in red naugahyde chairs along the perimeter. She was poured into a black leather one-piece bodysuit. Her long black hair cascaded down her back from a high ponytail. Carrying a clipboard, she stalked us in six-inch heels. Not bad-looking in an Elvira sort of way. Maybe a tad heavy on cleavage and eye makeup for an upscale office. Those spiked heels looked like they could do some serious damage to soft tissue. I hoped it wouldn't be mine. 
Peering through black cat-eyed glasses, her volumized eyes checked her sheet before looking up. Mr. Helmutter? Neil? I could see she was comparing the headshot I'd sent in to the physical specimen. I'd had a buddy do a snap of me with his iPhone at Yale Library just before closing. I was wearing a tweed jacket over a v-neck sweater and posed against a wall of scholarly tomes. My longish brown hair was brushed neatly. My expression was serious. I cringed now, remembering the pipe I'd insisted on holding. At the time, I thought it looked cool. My heart pounded. As I turned in my chair, I prayed I wouldn't make a naugahyde fart when I stood up. I gave her a little finger wave after making sure my fly was closed. Ah, come this way, please. She turned expertly on her stilettos and vanished through the open inner door. I was expected to follow. I did, of course. It closed with a wheeze, like collapsing lungs. I was astonished when I'd gotten the phone call about the novel I'd submitted. Mostly, I just received form email rejections. But this group had actually called me, and not to berate me for wasting their time. The man on the phone said he'd really liked it. I was psyched. I'd written a little horror tale that I thought wasn't half bad. Actually, I was pretty proud of it. It was my first book, after all. And I was eager to get it published just to rub it in the nose of those snotty elitists in my writing group. So I'd rummaged the internet for publishers in that genre and found their site, which in itself was an accomplishment. My internet search skills usually suck. Most of the results display everything except what I've queried. But this time, my cursor seemed drawn to the site like a compass needle to north. Their homepage showed a large, swirly Victorian logo surrounded by appropriately creepy images on a murky background. MS Inc. Reading their guidelines, I was elated. They seemed ideal for my book. A good fit. And their address was in Midtown Manhattan. So, sure, when I got the call, I felt like I'd hit the big time. Take that, lit fix snobs. The man had asked if I could come to New York to discuss the publication of my work in person. What would you say? Hell yeah, like I was going to turn that down? Sure, I said, Mr. Cool. I lived only one state away, so no biggie. I could take the train from Connecticut, make a day of it. We set a date and here I was. Clean shaven in a blue shirt, navy suit and maroon striped tie no less. Catwoman led me along a labyrinth of somber corridors, passing closed, solid-panel doors marked solely with wrought-iron Roman numerals, and I counted up to nine. The hall sconces were flickering red glass bowls, supported by what looked like the iron tines of a pitchfork. Cute, but effective if goth fright night is what you're going for. I suppressed a shiver. Skipping to keep up with her, I attempted casual conversation. It's pretty quiet here. I thought I'd hear the thump of printing presses or something. She turned and studied me over her glasses. A small, curling smile bloomed on her red lips. Production is in the basement. Less mess. At last, she ushered me into a cavernous, wood-paneled office with an immense desk and walls lined by dark-stained bookcases filled with hardcover volumes. 
Each volume had a different person's picture on its spine. The more traditional decor was reassuring. It spelled permanence and success. Mr. Grimbold will be with you presently. She closed the door as she departed, leaving me in silence. Dead silence. The soundproofing rivaled that of a top-notch recording studio. Such an old-fashioned term, presently, as if Mr. Grimbold would be popping in from another plane or another realm. I sniffed. There was a disturbing, smoky smell I couldn't quite identify. The dude must be a heavy smoker. Didn't smell much like tobacco, though. More like somebody had burned a whole box of matches. The room was so dimly lit I remained where I stood. What light there was filtered in through two long windows, heavily curtained in blood-red velvet and giving a restricted view over the street. An inner door opened from the far end of the office, and a man entered. From another office I heard someone hollering, in anger, or in fright, I couldn't tell. Once the door had shut, all was hushed again. He walked to the desk and sat down, switching on his brass desk lamp. Copy editors, eh? The man just can't stand a comma splice. Sorry to keep you. I recognized the voice I'd heard on the phone. As my eyes adjusted to the half-light, I picked out his name. Gustav Grimbold, on the brass nameplate, and the editor-in-chief after it. I hadn't recalled his name, but I sure as hell remembered his title. The man himself called me? Wow. He gestured to the one chair in front of his desk. Please, Mr. Helmuter, no reason to stand on ceremony. He was dressed in an impeccably tailored black business suit, crisp white shirt, red tie. It was his hair that was more out of the norm. Not a hairpiece. I could see the roots of his iron-gray hair springing from his scalp. But man, what a widow's peak, like that kid in the Adams family. I ignored my own hair follicles goose-bumping at the back of my neck. Just nerves. The chair he'd pointed me to was Jacobean, tall and heavy and carved with twining vines and fantastic beings. Some of the forms looked a bit demonic and disconcertingly frolicsome. I sat hiding my hands in my lap so he wouldn't see their trembling and doing my best to hide my smirk about the decor. Publishing only horror, it seemed a logical, if comical, touch to extend that theme into their furnishings. Was your journey an easy one? I thought of the agony of rejections I'd suffered before arriving, but deciding not to take the question as a metaphorical one. It was fine, thanks. Pity about the rain, although I suppose it's needed. It will help wash away the smoke. Peaky dude couldn't be from around here, or he would have said smog. But who was I to quibble? Grimbold laid his hands flat on his desktop. The nails were unusually long, but well manicured. First things first, just some formalities. The work is your own, and it's original and previously unpublished, yes? That's right. Quite a good story. Well-crafted. I swallowed, damping down a gush of gratitude. Thanks. Did you find the online submission software easy to use? I lied. Yes, for the most part, although a few things were a a bit different. I didn't want to let on how mystifying I'd found some parts of their form or divulge that I worked with cranky hardware and geriatric systems. I loathed online submissions, but (laughs) you gotta do what you gotta do. 
Good, good. And was this a simultaneous submission? He saw my hesitation as I attempted translation and clarified. Did you submit to any other publishers? It's all right if you did. But if you sign with us, we'd insist on you contacting the other publishers to withdraw your manuscript. No, no. Yours was the only publisher I submitted to. I could feel myself blushing at my grammatical gaffe, glad that copy editor couldn't hear me. I mean, to which I submitted. Grimbold nodded sympathetically. That's fine. Well, Mr. Helmuter, we expect your novel to be ready in time for Christmas. If you'd be so good, please sign here. Okay, then. Here we go. I didn't bother to read the form, as I'd already read their contract from the link he'd sent me before we spoke on the phone. And here. And here. And please date. Thank you. He took the contract and dropped it into a pre-labeled folder on his desk. Then he folded his hands and smiled at me. I sat back in the chair and returned the smile, waiting for what came next, mostly because I didn't have a clue. Excluding some short stories, this was my first thing actually sold. Any questions, Mr. Helmuter? Like about a zillion, but I didn't want to reveal that I was such a rookie. The terms and schedule of payments were also covered in the link he'd sent, so I shook my head. Excellent. Grimple beamed at me, then pushed the intercom on his phone. Dominata, could you come in here, please? And bring Mr. Desaad with you. The same leather-wrapped woman as before came in, towing a suited, slouching man with a bad brush cut and enormous hands. And now to the binding. Holy shit. Looked like I wouldn't have to battle months of editorial nitpicking. He was already discussing the book cover. I must rock. I might even be the next Dean Koontz. I allowed myself to relax my shoulders one notch and rested my hands on both arms of the chair. His two minions stepped up to either side of me and put a hand on each of the chairback's finials. As they did, the chair's carvings animated. My eyebrows shot up as the vines swarmed over my arms and bound me in place. What the... I goggled at the carved demons beginning to frolic up my crotch. They were putting the squeeze on me. Is there a problem, Mr. Helmuter? You did submit, did you not? Of your own free will? I whimpered, helplessly watching the furious forms envelop me. What the hell is this? It was just a book submission. I'll ignore the remark about hell, Mr. Helmuter, as it seems over-obvious. You also checked the box labeled M.S., did you not? I was trying to keep the pitch of my voice below falsetto. For manuscript, right? I thought that's what was required. You know, like if you were attaching something... He clicked his tongue inside, smiling openly now. His teeth were pointed. Ah, so many make that mistake. Grimbold shook his head. Please don't tell me you didn't bother to check our corporate information. (laughs) There are always so many tabs and drop-down menus. Fingers steepled, the editor sat back. I see... Well, our full name, as you would know if you checked our About Us page, is Masochists and Sadists Incorporated. We're a small subsidiary of hell, as you might have read. 
And if you'd scrolled to the bottom of that page, you would have also seen that by checking the MS box on the submission form, you were agreeing to the additional services we provide, as well as exclusive and unlimited rights to your... uh, content, as it were. The minions were now grinning. In any event, you've signed and dated our contract, which is quite binding, I assure you. Although I noticed you didn't bother to read it. But I did! The link you sent me! Oh, dear. My apologies. That was our standard contract. My staff had missed your checking the MS box when we sent it out. Which contract you sign makes a big difference. He twinkled at my frightened confusion. Leaning forward over his desk, hands clasped, he cocked an ironic eyebrow at me. Mr. Hellmuter, hasn't anyone ever told you to first read the document in front of you before you sign? The twisting vines and romping demons had reached my throat. As the last of my breath was squeezed out, my vision dimmed, filled with red and black pixelation. A reptilian tail forced its way down my windpipe, choking off my scream. Snow was falling gently past the long-draped windows in my office on the Avenue of the Americas. I stood at my window, looking out at the holiday shoppers going by beneath, burdened with bags of gifts. I always enjoyed this time of year. The goodwill, the joy, the bright hope to be dashed. I had my own gift for the literary world this year, as I had every year for the past... well... Who's counting, really? The board of directors would be pleased. Turning to the bookcase, I slid the new volume into its place on my shelves. Another soul brought to the thrill of submission. Neil Hellmuter's boyish face smiled out from the binding. These days, most of us are stuck inside and feel very limited to leave our homes. Now imagine what it must be like to be locked in a prison, desperate for those scant few minutes outside your cell. But in this tale, shared with us by author Amanda Dyer, we meet a prisoner with a new cellmate, a man who's more interested in what can enter his cell. Performing this tale is Atticus Jackson, So enjoy being able to come and go when you please, but don't underestimate the potential danger of doors. September 10th, 2003. My name is Samuel Levinson. And I am 23 years old, and I know if you look me up, my record is a little out there, but that's not me. I mean, 
It was me, but I'm turning things around, and I hate when people judge me from a Google search. I'm an inmate at the Arbuncle Correctional Facility, and I'd like to exchange a letter or two with you, if that's okay. I saw your article in the Christian Monthly Magazine we get here, and I had a question. You talked about demons and Ouija boards and portals to hell, and you said you can accidentally summon things and make doorways even when you don't mean to. And that's great and all, because I don't mess with that stuff. But I had a question. What happens when you mean to make a portal? I got this new Selly recently, and he's a little weird. My grandma might have called him Touched. I wanted him to be someone I could get along with, at least a little. Prison is a very lonely place. We're cut off from our family, and the only people we see every day either look down on us or committed a crime. Sometimes a lot of crimes, or a really bad one. Robert says he's in for murder, but the guard said it was attempted only. He tried to kill someone, and all I tried to do was get some money from my ex. He belongs in here, and maybe I do a little, but I don't belong with him. He has all these tattoos from outside prison, all kinds of demons and monsters I haven't even heard of, but they all have these biblical-sounding names like Moloch and Baleth and Agenti, and he likes to point each one out and tell me about them. He even has one he likes to point out that's a bunch of scribbles in a circle, and he calls it a seal. Other people have weird tattoos from the outside, and I don't have a problem with them, but this guy is weird. He's up all night talking to things I can't see, and Sometimes I catch him making scratches on his arms where the tattoos are, and in the morning, there's nothing there for the guards to get him on a one-on-one watch and away from me. The other day, I caught him drawing a big rectangle on the wall from the floor to almost over my head with some chalk he got from the art program. Don't ask me how he got it back to the cell. And I asked him what it was. It's taller than me, and I don't want to get in trouble for him drawing on the walls. A door, he tells me. Yeah, it's a door. A door to where? I'm wondering if it's going to be a door to somewhere I don't want to go. So I'm reaching out to you. If it's a door to hell, how do I close it? Thanks. And sorry to bother you. Samuel Levinson September 21st, 2003 Hello. Thank you so much for replying to my letter. I really appreciated the advice you gave me on getting a Bible. We are allowed to have books in our cells, but my Bible keeps going missing, and I don't have enough money in my commissary account to buy one every week. The guards found Robert's rectangle on the wall when they did an inspection and made him wash it off. But he keeps getting chalk and redrawing it in different sizes. It was in pink chalk before... But now it's white and he seems happier about it. I'm not sure why the color matters, but you asked about the color. It's like sidewalk chalk. Nothing special. He didn't get it sent in from outside. It's 
Just chalk they get for what they like to call the enrichment program. Small white sticks about the size of cigarettes. At night, if I get up to pee, I'll look at this bunk to see him staring at the rectangle. It's right next to the toilet, so the first couple times I thought he was staring at me. And then, I realized he was looking past me. If he's standing in front of it, I gotta shove him to the side to go. And I'm getting worried he's either crazy or possessed. Maybe he's both. I'm going to start trying to break the rectangle like you said and erase parts of it. I can't tell the guards whenever he does it or I'll get a rep. And I'm not getting out of here anytime soon, so I can't afford to be known for that. So it's up to me for now. And he keeps chanting, Samael, at night. I wake up thinking he's chanting my name, but it's Samael, and not Samuel. I don't know whose name it is. I I can't find it in the Bible or the other Christian texts we have that people donate. Do you know who it is? I ask my mom, but she doesn't answer my letters anymore. Sometimes it feels like my entire world is these walls. While Robert's door might take him somewhere nice, I don't want to see what's on the other side. Thank you, sir. Samuel Levinson. October 15th, 2003. Hello. I'm going to start this letter off with what Robert's doing now. He added a sketchy handle to his door. It's a little circle, but I think it worked. He made a door to hell. I keep seeing people out of the corner of my eye, even when I'm not in the facility. They haven't said anything yet, and they move out of the way if I'm walking towards them, but there's something creepy about them. There's a couple different kinds, and I thought demons are supposed to be... obvious. These things are like people, but... different. Their eyes are always too big for their faces, or their mouths are too wide, and sometimes they don't have a face at all. It's just smooth skin with vague indents where the eyes should be, and the big-eyed women just follow me around the jail... They're in the yard standing under the bleachers. They shouldn't fit there, but they do. Peering between legs and always watching me. The people with the big mouths don't speak. Their faces move like they're stretching something inside. Like how a snake unhinges its jaws. But they don't say anything to me. Or open their mouths at all. I don't see them much. They're always standing around the guards watching them, hovering too close, but the guards don't see or say anything either. They just keep on with their day, and they're doing cell checks less and less, at least in ours. And they're not making Robert wash the door off anymore. It's like they don't see it. I mean, I get it. It's white chalk on a plain whitish cement wall, but you can still see it when you look close enough. I don't know if the wide-mouthed people are doing anything to the guards. Can a demon possess someone without being inside them? How come I can see them, but no one else can? And the printed stuff you sent about the different versions of Samael don't help. 
He's either an angel, a demon, or Satan. And I only like one of those options. Robert doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's trying to summon an angel, either. How come no one believes me but you? Thanks, and sorry. Samuel Levinson November 20th, 2003 Sir, what does Satan look like? There's a man in a suit now who keeps peering in the cell at night. The damn door almost glows around the edges and he just steps through and dusts himself off. He's always smiling very widely, but it's a strange kind of smile. He's got too many teeth for his mouth. And it doesn't look like he's happy, but the smile never goes away. It's like there's hooks in the corners of his mouth stretching it out. He's not big in the way that some of the guys in the yard are. All muscle and banked rage. But his suit fits real good, like a high-priced lawyer most of us can't afford. He's got some weird proportions, too. Tall and big shoulders, but the rest of him is real slender, like a malnourished kid or something. He doesn't have horns or a crown, and he doesn't talk about God or Jesus or taking over the earth. He just seems satisfied to be in the prison and for the door to have worked, because he keeps tracing it with his finger all the time, and he looks at everything in the cell. Even the toilet. It's right next to the door, but what's so interesting about a toilet? I try not to watch while he touches everything. Robert just sits on the bed smiling while the man walks around our cell examining everything. Sometimes he walks through the door like it's not even there and goes off exploring or something. Because I don't see him again for the rest of the night. I'm glad not to. There's a deepness in his eyes that I don't want to go near. And whenever he opens his mouth, his teeth are stupid sharp. I'm really hoping this dude isn't Satan, but I don't know what else he could be. It's not like they stuck us with a nighttime-only Sally. Because when I ask the guards about him, they just shrug and turn away. It's making me feel crazy when I complain and no one listens. Is any of this really happening? Are these things really here? Or am I crazy? Before Robert became my Sally, I never saw anything before. I didn't have an imaginary friend when I was a kid. Didn't write in a diary or anything. And even if I had, I don't think I would have seen things like this. No one seems to care but me that all this is happening. How can I make them stop? I don't know how to kill a demon. And it's hard enough to even get a shank here, let alone one blessed by a priest. I want to talk to the chaplain that comes here for Sunday services, but I don't know what to say to him. Mention a shank to any of the guests and it's almost an instant visit to the hall. If I go there, maybe I won't see the suit man anymore. Or maybe I'd be trapped in a tiny room with him and nothing to distract him from me. You're the only person who believes me. Best, Samuel Levinson.
December 3rd, 2003. Dear Sir, I'm sorry for all the letters I keep sending you. Your advice has been very valuable while I've been in here, and I have enjoyed the books you keep sending even though they always go missing. Things have gotten worse. There's more things walking around the jail, and some of them aren't even pretending to be human anymore. There are these really fat blobs with eyes all over them, and they just roll down the hall after Robert wherever he's walking, ghosting through other people and making the lights get dim. A spindly thing with deer horns seems like it's been assigned to me, following me even in the shower. It stands back away from the spray, but it stares with empty eye sockets, and whenever it opens its mouth, I smell something rotting and hear a high-pitched noise that makes me want to shove something in my ears until I can't hear anymore. I could have ignored the other things, pretended they were other prisoners or even guards since they still looked like people, but I can't pretend anymore. I don't know if anyone else is seeing them, but I've heard rumors that some people are committing suicide, and there's more guys hurting each other. They found a body in the laundry the other day, all wrapped up in sheets and stabbed, though the cotton didn't have any white left in it. And I keep seeing more and more fights break out in the yard. The man in the suit is in our cell almost every night whispering to Robert and moving from monster to monster all around the prison. It's like he's inciting a riot or something. He told me, no matter how many Bibles I get, it's not going to keep him from coming through the door. And I can't handle that screaming deer thing anymore. I can't sleep. I can't eat. All I can hear is that thin... Wine. Tonight, I'm going to do what I need to to close the door and make Robert stop redrawing it. I don't know what all I'll need to do, but anything has to be better than listening to that dear thing scream or keep seeing those things around the prison. Prisons are for people, not monsters like these. Thank you. For everything you've done for me, I will let you know if it works. Regards, Samuel. Do you ever have one of those days where you die and end up in hell talking to the devil? We've all been there, right? Just like Terry. And yes, he has a diabolical deal offered to him. And as we learn from author Rona Vassilar, the deal Terry's offered seems rather dark, even for the devil. I join Graham Rowett, David Alt, Dan Zapula, and Jeff Clement in performing this tale. So think twice before you decide to do 
The Devil's Bidding. I died when I was 28. I remember it with startling clarity. One minute I was driving down the highway, blasting music and humming under my breath. Then a red pickup hurtled over the center line and hit me head on. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt, so I was thrown forward through the windshield. I can still hear that horrible crunch as my head shattered the glass. I felt every second of my skid down the road, leaving blood smeared on the asphalt behind me. It felt like it took forever to die. It was the single most painful thing I've ever experienced. I wonder sometimes if dying is like that for everyone, or if I'm just unlucky. Then, everything was dark for an instant, sort of like blinking. I closed my eyes as I lay broken and bleeding on the burning hot asphalt, and I opened them to a sitting room. It was indescribable. Not because it was amazing or anything. It was just so nondescript. It looked like every boring waiting room you've ever seen in your life. Even now I can't remember if the walls were white or gray or tan. If there was carpet or linoleum. If the love seat or couch or chair I sat on was that fake plasticky leather or actually covered in plastic. Hello, Terry. The man next to me was every bit as boring as the waiting room, except I can recall exactly what he looked like. He was average in height, a little pudgy around his cheeks, with dull gray eyes and thin lips. He was balding, with just a little wispy, sandy hair near his temples. He was wearing a suit, which I thought was funny. I'd be in a suit soon, I supposed, on account of the fact that I was... Dead. You're dead, Terry. I'd offer you my condolences, but, well... Thank you. We have something to discuss before you continue on to the afterlife. Are you aware that you are in hell? That jolted me. This is hell? <laughs> well, not exactly. This is just a... A holding chamber of sorts, where I speak to the souls of the damned before the actual damnation begins. This doesn't make any sense. I'm... I was a good person. Not the sort of good person that gets into heaven. Oh, Terry, you were neutral at best. Downright malicious in your worst moments, and we all know that the worst moments are the ones that count, don't we? There must be some mistake. I can't go to hell! I'm afraid there aren't many options available to you. Many? Wait, there aren't many options? What does that mean? Is there still a chance I can save myself? Who are you? So many questions. One at a time now. Yes, there is one avenue of escape open to you yet, and introductions, I should think, are hardly necessary. You're about to go to hell. You know who I am. The devil. I'm sitting here talking to the devil about to burn in hell. Well, it's not so much a burning as a filleting. Never mind that for now, though, Terry. Do you want to live? Yes. 
And do you want the chance to one day make it to heaven? Yes! Well, in that case, I'll offer you a choice. You can either accept your fate and walk through those doors into the bowels of hell, or you can get me three other souls to take your place. I... I don't understand. It's simple. You need to kill three people for me. Oh, but not good people, bad people, the ones who are certain to be damned. If you do that, then I'll let you live. You can spend the rest of your life acting like a saint and end up in heaven where you're so sure you belong. But if I kill three people, I mean, doesn't that automatically disqualify me from heaven? Didn't you go to Sunday school as a child? You simply have to ask God's forgiveness and he'll wipe your slate clean. And if that fails, you'll still have your entire life left to do good deeds to make up for three little murders. Trust me, people have gone to heaven for less. I would know. Why would I trust you? You're literally the father of lies. Of course, I lie to get my way. That's one of the many things I have in common with you humans. You should trust me because I'm clearly getting a good deal. I can exchange your frankly boring soul for three terribly bad ones. What do I care if I don't end up with yours? Now, have we got a deal? Okay. Fine, you've got yourself a deal. The devil smiled, and even though there was nothing terribly frightening about it, it sent a shiver up my spine nonetheless. Excellent. Oh, and uh, one more thing. You must deliver the souls to me in three days. Three days? That's right. If at the end of three days you fail to pay up, then I'm afraid our contract is null and void. Understand? I nodded. Good. Well, then, off you go. And remember, choose your victims carefully. <laughs> the devil snapped his fingers, and then he was gone. And the waiting room was gone. And I was in my car, my radio still blaring, my hands clenched tight on the steering wheel. The red truck passed by in the opposite lane without incident. How do you decide who deserves to go to hell and who doesn't? Three people, the devil said. Three very bad people. Who am I to judge who deserves damnation? I mean, I was very wrong about the status of my own immortal soul, so clearly I'm not the best arbiter. I'd driven home after my reversed death, only to sit in the living room, staring sightlessly at the TV. I only had three days. How was I supposed to pull this off in three days? I was beginning to feel an upswell of despair. I was going to fail. I was going to have to say goodbye to everyone I knew and loved, enter a world of unending misery and torture. And then something on the TV caught my eye. A news report about Derek McCall. After serving just five years in prison, Derek McCall has been granted parole. McCall was convicted of second-degree murder of Eleanor Fealty, his ex-girlfriend's five-year-old daughter. Eleanor Fealty's family was... I remembered that case. Eleanor had died of a Tylenol overdose. It had taken three grueling days in the hospital before she finally passed. Derek claimed he hadn't given them to her, but as only his fingerprints were on the Tylenol bottle... He changed his story and said he didn't mean to give her so many. 
There were no other witnesses. And even though everyone believed he'd intentionally killed Eleanor, the prosecution was only able to confidently pursue second-degree murder. The community was furious when he only received ten years in prison, with a possibility of parole after five. How can a child murderer just be turned loose back into society like that? There was no question. Derek McCall was the lowest kind of scum. The kind that preys on children. Bingo. I had to be careful and quick. I needed to kill him and evade discovery for at least two more days after that so I could get two other souls. I made my plan and gave myself no room for hesitation. I grabbed a kitchen knife, a blanket, rope, kerosene, and some matches. It wasn't hard to track Derek down. I just went to his last known address, a house he owned at the other edge of town. It was dark by the time I drove out there, and the street itself was deserted. I figured he'd be trailed by the media, or maybe just other enraged citizens. But the house stood quiet and isolated. I parked down the block and walked around to the back of the house. There wasn't a back door, but there was a window cracked open, and that's how I found my way inside. He was sitting in an armchair in his living room, drinking a beer and watching some shitty game show. I thought that when I saw him, I'd be overcome with an intense feeling of hatred and disgust to be in the presence of such pure evil. Instead, it just felt like watching any random person enjoying a quiet night in. It made my stomach crawl, knowing what I was about to do. But the clock was ticking, and I didn't want to waste another second. I came up behind him, raised the knife, and plunged it into his neck. He tried to scream but apparently it's a little difficult to do with a knife in your throat. His hands fluttered at his neck as I yanked the knife back out. The blood sprayed across the room, hitting the opposite wall. He twisted around to get a look at me and managed to twist himself right off the chair, falling to the carpet as he choked on his own blood. His eyes were terrified. It took longer for him to die than I thought it would. It felt like hours later that I was wrapping him up in the blanket and securing the body with rope. I made quick work bringing the body back to my car, dumping it into the truck. Then I went back to the house and spent a few hours cleaning every inch of the living room. I took the bloody rags with me back to the car, drove out to the quarry just outside of town, and unloaded the body and rags there. I doused the whole mess in kerosene and lit it up. I stayed to make sure it burned down. That really did take hours, and I was sure someone was going to come by and catch me. But nobody did. Once the man was reduced to ash and bone, I kicked the remains over the edge of the quarry, turned on my heel, got into my car, and went back home. One down, two to go. I didn't sleep well that night. I barely slept at all just a few hours, and then I had to drag myself out of bed because I couldn't relax. I needed to find a second victim, and fast. I got up and walked into the bathroom and saw that it was covered in blood. It was everywhere. In the shower, on the toilet, covering the mirror. It looked like a person's entire blood volume was emptied into my bathroom. On the mirror, traced through the blood were the words, Two Days. I stumbled away from the bathroom and slammed the door shut. I'm pretty good at taking a hint, 
so I immediately began searching for my next target. I tried the news again, but came up with nothing. At least it didn't seem like anyone had noticed Derek's disappearance yet, so that was something. As I watched the news, I racked my brain. There had to be someone I knew, or at least knew of, that would qualify as a bad person. But who? And then it hit me. Of course. Of course! Nathan Becker. If you'd asked me who the worst person in our little neighborhood was, I'd have given you his name without question. Here was another scumbag preying on children. He was caught multiple times trying to lure young girls into his home. He was a registered sex offender, had done a stint in jail for assaulting a minor, and I always privately suspected that he'd killed some of his victims, though I'd never be able to prove it. It was just a hunch, anyway. Nathan was in his 60s by now, so I thought he'd be easy. And since he lived right down the street, I didn't have to go far. I still had the knife. Perhaps I should have gotten rid of it, but why not keep it until this was all over, then toss it at the end? I decided I'd kill him the same way I killed Derek. All I had to do was wait for nightfall. While I did, I searched for my third victim. By the time it was dark, I was so anxious I was practically jumping out of my skin. I exited my house through the back door and walked across the five yards, separating him from me. His back door was open, and it was a small matter to creep inside. I had to search the house to find him. It turned out he was already upstairs in bed, asleep. That should have made my job easier. But I stood there for a few moments, watching him. He was just so defenseless, laying there. He had no idea what was about to happen to him. I never thought I'd be in a position to say this, but it's hard to kill someone who's sleeping. You can't do it. I practically jumped out of my skin. Next to me stood the devil, staring at me in mild disapproval. I gave you this chance and you're blowing it. I can do it! I'm just gathering my courage! You're wasting time. If you don't hurry up, he's going to wake up. Nathan stirred in the bed. Be quiet! Let me handle this! Tick-tock, Terry. Tick-tock. The devil vanished. Who are you? What are you doing in my house? Panic seized me. I whirled around and plunged the knife without taking even a second to aim. It entered Nathan's stomach. Both of us stared at the knife for a second, like the situation hadn't really dawned on either of us. And then he started to scream. I grabbed one of his pillows and stuffed it over his face. He was thrashing now, which was causing the knife wound to tear wider, and that was causing him to scream louder. I wrenched the knife out and tried to stab him in the heart, except he was struggling so wildly that I got him in the lung instead. Finally, as he grew weaker, I was able to thrust the knife one last time into his throat. After that, it took mere seconds more until he bled out. I followed the same routine as the night before. Remove the body, clean the scene, drive the corpse and the evidence out to the quarry, burn it, kick the mess over the side. By the time I got home, I was exhausted and overwhelmed by the smell of smoke sticking to my skin. 
Fortunately, whatever bloody affliction had cursed my bathroom was gone, and I was able to shower. That hadn't gone as smoothly as I'd hoped, but the bright side was that I already knew who I was going to murder next. Kathy Jones was a local woman who'd inherited quite a sum of money when her husband passed away from an apparent heart attack. There was no autopsy done, even though it was suspected throughout the community that his death was no accident. Just before he died, she'd somehow convinced him to take his adult children out of his will and leave everything to her. Or perhaps she'd forged the will. Either way, the children tried to contest it in court and lost. She took everything from them. Their father, their inheritance. That has to be worth a trip to hell, right? And by the time I'd showered, it was still dark out. I had time. I wanted this to be over. So I got in my car drove across town and crept into her house, just like I'd done the other two. She, too, was in bed. I didn't hesitate this time. I slapped my hand across her mouth and stabbed her through the throat. I let her scream into my hand until her struggles died down. Then I began to wrap her up in a blanket. I didn't get any further than that when I heard the sirens. By the time I got downstairs, the house was surrounded. The police were knocking at the door, and I just stood there in the foyer, covered in blood, knowing that it was all over. I guess some neighbor had seen me breaking into the house and called the police. In my haste to leave this nightmare behind, I'd gotten sloppy. I left Kathy's house in handcuffs. But that was okay. Because I'd done it. I'd done it. Three people dead, three souls damned to hell, and that meant... Mine was free. I only ended up spending 40 years in prison, which isn't so bad, all things considering. I was charged with the murder of Kathy Jones. They suspected I had something to do with Nathan Becker's disappearance, but couldn't find a body or any evidence to charge me. Derek McCall's name never even came up. I guess it didn't strike anybody as odd that he'd skipped town after his release. When they asked why I did it, I told them. The devil told me I had to give him three souls to save my own. I figured I had nothing to lose by telling the truth. The lawyers wanted to plead insanity, but upon psychological evaluation, I was deemed fit to stand trial. I received a life sentence with the possibility of parole after 40 years. I was a model prisoner. I was kind and helpful to everyone. I took my beatings from the guards and the other prisoners and never complained. I attended church services and confessed my sins and begged God's forgiveness. But it never felt like enough. That was all right, though. I was only 68 when I was released. Plenty of time to make the world a better place and earn my spot in heaven. The first night out, I stayed at a hotel, having lost my own home when I went to prison. I could feel the possibilities opening up ahead of me. The good I could do. The kindness I could spread. I'd done it. I'd escaped hell itself. Then I woke up to someone standing next to my bed. I have to do it. I'm so sorry. He needs three souls. No other choice. That was the last thing I heard before I saw the flash of the knife. 
When you live in a small town, it can feel like you know everybody, especially if you're the town sheriff. And in this tale, shared with us by author A.M. Castillo, one night the sheriff meets a man just passing through, and despite knowing the man is gone, the sheriff believes something about him lingers on in the town. Performing this tale are Mick Wingert, Kyle Akers, Graham Rowett, Mike Delgadio, Peter Lewis, Matthew Bradford, Dan Zapula, Mary Murphy, Aaron Lillis, Atticus Jackson, and Sarah Thomas. So keep an eye out when you see someone new. They might be a friend, or they might be the stranger. Except for Paul, the jail cells were empty the night a stranger skulked through the town of Tumble Peak. That wasn't anything out of the ordinary, because Paul was always there. It was an odd night in my three-year stint as county sheriff. Paul wasn't picked up from wandering the streets singing Bob Dylan at the top of his lungs. Sometimes he would even wander to the station himself, with the words of blowing in the wind fresh on his lips, and a bottle of Jack Daniels in one hand and a harmonica in the other. People must say I'm bored out of my mind working in a small mountain town off of Route 240 where the only action to be had is to sober an old drunk. But they would be dead wrong. I wanted the job. I had even begun to enjoy it, actually. Of course, after being called out to the scene of your wife's hit and run and seeing her mangled corpse splayed across the pavement, a man desires a certain level of quiet. Tumble Peak was nothing if not quiet. With a population of roughly 862 in the 80s, it was more a rest stop on the way to the lush California skiing slopes than an actual town. Except for that night, that is. That night, it was something else entirely. And although it has been 30 years, my memory is as clear as those mountain lakes. It was 10 p.m. when it was time for me to head home. Old Paul was tucked away in his cell, and my deputy was reading with his feet up on the only desk in the room. Henry was a tall man, and his legs stretched over the desk like tree roots over a boulder. Turning in? Yeah. You'll take care of him? I pointed to the sole occupant of the jail. Yep. Don't you worry about Sleeping Beauty. I bet he won't be conscious for another 12 hours. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. See you in the morning, pal. I grabbed my jacket, and while walking out the door, I heard a voice, small and unexpectedly melodic, sing softly. Before they call him a man, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Good night, Paul. I left the station. The station was an old cement building that doubled as a firehouse. It sat in the town center, among some of the tallest sequoia trees in the state. I spotted my cruiser. Not surprisingly, it was the only vehicle left parked out front. 
I cranked the ignition on the old black-and-white cruiser. It was a relic held over from the 1960s when Kennedy was still president. There wasn't much in the way of a budget for out-of-the-way nowhere towns such as the Peak for anything other than bare necessities. But I didn't mind. The seats were cracked from the asses of past sheriffs and the AC only worked one day out of the year. But it was comfortable. It was like the way the town had grown comfortable. As soon as I moved to Tumble Peak, I made it a point to remember everyone's name when I greeted them. I did this not because I was particularly friendly, but to try to erase the memory of everything else with new information. Knowing that Marisol worked out of her clothing shop with her mother of 87, where the Walter family had lived in this county since the gold rush, helped endear me to the town at the very least. But there would always remain an uneasiness toward me. I was an outsider, after all. That is why I hesitated when I pulled into the Quick Fill, the town's only gas station and liquor store. I didn't need the gas or even the liquor, but it was like I was pulled there by instinct. Another car was parked at the pumps, one that I did not recognize, and a car like that stood out to me. It was a 58 Ford Mustang. It was the car that murdered my wife. I got out of the cruiser and lit a cigarette with one hand. The match blew out once and I had to light a second. I realized that my hand wasn't at all steady, so I abandoned the effort and put the cigarette back in my shirt pocket. The car was like a black beast peering at me from two staring eyes. The lights from the gas station bounced off its smooth paint and made it look like leathery hide. Its grill stretched and appeared like teeth that sneered as if jeeping at my dark memories. I reached out and felt the heat radiating from its hood. But it was unnatural. It was a heat that came from a beast, not a machine. It's a beauty, ain't it? The voice was jarring, like rocks rubbing together. The man was grinning. It was a wide grin that was as large as his car's sneer. He was a plain-faced man with skin stretched too tight over sharp features. His eyes were buried deep within his skull and his lips were too red. It wasn't a natural face. It was a face that would give anyone pause if met, say, in a dark gas station. If you say so, mister. I took a step back from the car. I hated to admit it to myself because not many things frightened me, but the ghosts of my past had shaken me in a way they hadn't since that first night alone in another bed. Sure have a nice town here, Sheriff. It's a place a man can really sink his teeth into. Passing through. I recognized that I said this more as a statement than a question. I didn't mind. Ooh, yes. I enjoy taking the scenic route. Enjoy it very much. He smiled wider with those ruby lips. Not much to see in the dark. I put another cigarette in my mouth and was successful in lighting it in one fluid motion. I disagree wholeheartedly. The man gave a nod and excused himself to leave. His black boots scuffed on the pavement as he entered his car. 
I made sure he was well past the road that led into the peak before I allowed myself to turn away. Even as he left my sight, I could still feel the heat of the car on my fingertips. I crushed the cigarette under my shoe and headed inside. As soon as I entered the market, all uneasiness began to flow out of me. The harsh electric lighting seemed to burn it away. This feeling of disquiet was something I couldn't escape. Even all the way up here, I would be cursed with it until the day I died. Evening, Sheriff. Dick was reading one of those western novels he liked so much. The ones where cowboys always defeated the Indians and the damsels were saved from outlaws. Evening, Dick. How's it going? Oh, same as always. You see that beauty that walked in? He didn't bother to look up from his book. Sure did. He gave me the creeps. I think he must have gotten one of those uh, Hollywood facelifts. <laughs> Someone ought to tell the poor fella his face. Well, it looks like a, an inflated balloon. He laughed. <laughs> it was a gruff sound, but one that I had grown accustomed to in my short time here. <sighs> you got that right. I suppose I'll just fill up and head on home. You're all right, Sheriff. He put his book down and stared at me for the first time. You look as though you've seen a ghost. Well, I, I'm fine. Just coming down with something, I guess. If only he had known just how close to the truth he actually was. It was a challenge getting to sleep that night, but it was something I was finally able to accomplish after hours of tossing in bed only to be rewarded with dreams of dismembered limbs and blood. There was always so much blood. I awoke to the sound of my telephone ringing. I rubbed the sleep out of my eyes and peered into the darkness, trying my best to orient myself. Hello? Sheriff? Sorry to wake you like this. Henry? What is it? I stood up straight. All sleepiness wiped away. I suddenly felt very cold. I just got a call from the Sawyers. They tucked in their girl around nine and now she's gone missing. Tracy? An image of a freckled girl with brown locks came to mind. She's what, ten? Eight. Jesus. Meet me there. Call in Emily to look after Paul, would you? Emily was both a volunteer deputy and Henry's wife. Already on it. I was on the road again in minutes. Scenarios were already running through my head. Usually a missing child wouldn't be anything to stress over when they haven't been gone for more than a few hours. Most likely they went and got themselves into trouble with their friends, or worst case scenario, lost. This wasn't typical. Girls don't go missing at one at night from their bedroom. Especially not in the peak. I looked at my gas gauge out of habit and I remembered the thin-faced stranger from the previous night. My grip tightened on the steering wheel and I drove a little quicker. There was no rationality for it. People passed the main highway all the time. But I had an intense feeling in my gut that he was the one to blame. My gut was never wrong. When he was near me, I felt something I had no word for other than mean. It was as if he enjoyed watching my discomfort. I arrived at the Sawyer place 20 minutes after the call. 
They lived farther and more isolated than the other townies, even by the peak standards. It was their summer home, so they must have taken solace vacationing in the acres of forest around them when not minding their restaurants in one of the larger towns down the mountain. Both parents were already outside. Randy Sawyer shouting. Henry had already arrived. He was standing in front of them, a looming shadow of 6'4", trying his best to calm them. Why are you just standing here? Evelyn was sobbing in the doorframe behind Randy. There were already two neighbors arriving when I pulled in. They were sleepy-eyed and dressed in pajama pants and sweaters. Randy must have called them as soon as he called us. Let us handle it, Randy. You aren't handling shit! You're, you're just standing there! I stepped next to Henry. Randy, please. We're fine, Tracy. Hearing his daughter's name had the effect I hoped it would. He looked over at me and scowled. Come on, Randy. One of the men who pulled up beside my cruiser came over and took him by the shoulders. It was Vincent Brown from the hardware store. Let's have a look around. Follow me, Sheriff. I followed my deputy around the home to the backside, flashlights bright in both of our hands. The lights from inside shined brightly through the white curtains. All the windows were clean, and all were shut tightly and secure from the looks of it. But of course, that was something to be checked for later. I stopped when I saw something in the circle of light. It was a stuffed, colorful rabbit with a big stuffed carrot sewn in between its front paws. It was something a girl would keep with her while she slept. I don't think they saw it. No. No, I suppose you're right. I found a discarded paper bag around the corner and placed the toy out of sight for safekeeping. I was careful not to disturb the spots of blood in its rainbow fur. A distinctive smell caught my attention. It was harsh and out of place from the pines and the earth of the mountain. It was the smell of whiskey. It was a familiar scent. I smelled it every night when it came carried on the breath of a singing drunk named Paul. The empty bottle was laying discarded behind a bush. The flashlight winked off its smooth surface. Henry eyed the bottle. He's been locked up the whole night. I know. I thought back to the stranger. But everyone else doesn't. Get this out of sight. Henry quickly complied. I'm calling in the state police. We got ourselves a missing child. But in the meantime, get everyone we know together. We're not waiting around for them to arrive. A good hunk of the town had showed. We had formed five groups of twenty that had each taken one corner of Tumble Peak and worked our way inward. By six that very same day, we had covered half a dozen miles in the dark. The residents had no trouble navigating the hills and underbrush. We searched every back trail and alcove we could find. This was their mountain and they knew it well. I wasn't surprised with the number of volunteers that had flocked to our help. But I was surprised by their vehemence. A missing child was a perversion to their way of life. It was like the very soul of the town was under attack. State police had been slow to respond. It turned out there'd been a murder across state lines that had tied up most of their resources, but at last they gave an ETA of two hours, 
and I was determined to search until they arrived with dogs or anything else they would bring. We haven't seen hide nor hair of anything suspicious, Sheriff. Dick was the first volunteer as soon as he heard what was going on and so was assigned to my group. He wiped sweat from his balding head with a handkerchief. Although I had taken to searching the steeper slopes of the peak, Dick had kept up unfalteringly. No, we haven't. But I'd rather keep on looking all the same. Want to head back? I can send someone to help you back up the hill. I'll keep on. Don't you go worrying about me. He hitched up his pants and strode on ahead, calling out for Tracy Sawyer. Tracy? It wasn't Dick I was concerned about. I knew, just like most people, that with every passing hour, Tracy's chances of being found safe grew slimmer. There was an invisible ticking clock that taunted and reminded all of us just how delicate this search was. But this was rural country, and there were so many places to hide. I knew that if I thought about it for too long, a looming shadow would cloud my heart. And that was something I couldn't afford to show. As we continued along the trees and rustling leaves, there was a crackling sound from the radio that all group leaders carried. Sheriff Cruz here. We found her about a mile southeast of downtown. Oh God, by the field. Come quick. It was the voice of Marisol. She led group three. It was also the group that Tracy's parents were in. I explained to my group that the search was called off. They all instantly began shouting questions. Yes, I said to them, she was found. That was all I had to share, but if I thought they would all disperse and go home, I was mistaken. Every one of them followed me out to the field despite my protests. We were like a trail of rocks hurtling towards a planet. It took longer than I would have liked to arrive. The field was a barren patch of land not used for much except to practice shooting. But that day, it was the site where the town congregated. Marisol had sent the message to everyone, most likely forgetting which channel was mine, and all groups had showed. They were all positioned in a perfect circle like ewers of corn that swayed in the breeze. Henry was there as well. He was off to the side and looking straight into the underbrush away from the crowd. There was something odd about that look. As if he'd fallen and hit his head. Then I understood. It disconcerted me more than I cared to admit. For the first time in the three years I had known him, I was seeing him terrified. He wasn't the only one. Most people shared his look. From the center of the circle there were two inhuman shrieks ringing like hell's chorus. Carlos? I mean, Sheriff, I've... I've never... Henry approached me. He still struggled to keep his balance. I had to see what was at the center for myself. It called to me the way sirens called the sailors. The crowd easily moved aside when I walked forward as if having no will of their own. In the soft glow of the early morning, I saw the various parts of what used to be a little girl... They were scattered in odd angles detached from each other, open to the random bugs that had already found their feast. There were arms and legs and her head. Her head was propped on a flat rock used to shoot bottles, like a vase on a mantle. She was missing her teeth. 
It was more a jack-o'-lantern than a human head. And there was blood. So much blood the earth was clotted with it. I couldn't believe that all of it belonged to one little girl. There seemed to be too many arms, too many legs. Images of my dead wife's splayed remains on a street corner assaulted me. It was happening all over again. At the center of this were two people screeching so loud I was surprised their throats didn't collapse on themselves. Come. You shouldn't be seeing this. You promised. Randy seemed to finally acknowledge that there were others around him. I'm so sorry. Someone. Someone will be. Look! Everyone's head turned to what was just now being noticed scattered among the horror. They glimmered among the filth like perverted jewels. Empty bottles of Jack Daniel's whiskey. My blood ran cold. I knew what came next. It felt like the steady hum of an electrical current was coursing through the air. It was Paul. The words came from someone in the crowd, finally. Almost inaudible. I didn't know the voice. To my exhausted mind, it sounded so much like the stranger I'd met at the gas station. A stranger with a 58 Ford Mustang. It was Paul. Yeah, it was Paul. Who else? Paul's the only one around here who drinks that shit. Paul isn't right in the head. I had had enough. Everyone listen. As the sheriff of this county, I'm ordering all of you to disperse. Let the authorities handle this. Go home. The crowd stared at me, hesitant and afraid. No, this is no longer your concern, Sheriff. Randy approached me with his hands curled into fists. Tracy, that's when I was punched square in the jaw. The world swam in and out of focus, but I fought to keep my composure and my balance. It was a dangerous situation, and I was speaking to an unstable father crowd stared, horrified. Henry, green but reliable, had made his way to stand beside me. And to my surprise, so had Dick and Marisol. Henry unstrapped the hilt of his gun, making the silent threat clear. Their presence served to discomfort Randy. You get that one hit, Randy. Because of what's happened here today, you won't get another one. For a moment, the world was still. And then... Ever so slowly, everyone began to shuffle and disperse. I believe to this day it all would have ended right there, but life had other plans for Tumble Peak. Evelyn, covered in her child's blood, had taken to cradling her baby's head, and in doing so had found a harmonica lodged within Tracy's gaping mouth. She screeched for what must have been an eternity. I couldn't believe a sound like that could be made by a human throat. It chilled me to my core. Then the world broke into chaos. The mob rushed. I heard Henry firing for dominance. But there were half a dozen men that had sprung on him, and just as many on me. I went for my gun trying desperately to put an end to this by sending a warning shot, but instead I got punched once, twice. I hit back and heard a grunt of pain, but then I was tackled to the ground. Somewhere in the distance I heard Dick shouting. Marisol was screaming. Evelyn was still wailing. 
I was down on the damp ground and inhaling scents I would remember to my dying day. There was a gunshot, and then blackness. Sheriff? A voice drifted from above. The side of my face was throbbing. I could feel my eye already swelling shut. There was a metallic feeling at the back of my throat, but I tried not to think about where it might have come from. Dick? Let me, let me help you up. I felt a tug, and the next moment I was right side up, unsteady, but whole. Marisol was cradling an arm, silent tears flowing down dirty cheeks. Evelyn, finally quiet, had fainted. Everyone else was gone. Everyone but Henry, who was staring blankly into the air with a gaping hole where a blue eye had been. My gun was still strapped, but his lay discarded casually near him. The world swam, and Dick held out an arm to hold me steady. They all just left him there like that. How could they? Where... where did they go? I'd already known the answer, even before both pointed in the direction of the station. Dick, stay with them. Where are you going? I need to stop it. I left them looking alone and afraid in the center of the most gruesome murder scene I'd ever encountered, and I envied them. I envied them because there was something even more horrific waiting for me. It was a mob of people I once considered friends, people that had smiled at me as I drove around in my old cruiser trying to forget my past self. Now they were all strangers to me. The town was empty except for the mob surrounding the station. A few buildings lay dormant and waiting for their owners to occupy them. But that was something that would not happen that day. I waved away the few eyes that peeked from their homes. I heard that relentless chanting as I approached the station. Paul, Paul, Paul. A noose was already swinging listless from a tree branch. It was like a pendulum ticking away the sanity of Tumble Peak. The crowd moved aside as I entered the station, uninterested in anything but their prize that lay inside. The station was tight and hot. A hundred people were crammed in a space built for half the size. I looked around desperately for Emily, Henry's wife, and spotted her hugging herself in the corner. She was already beginning to develop a bruise on the side of her face where someone must have struck her to take the key. At the end, where the two cells stood side by side, Paul was being dragged out, confused and afraid. The mob was like an ocean sweeping away a child in its undertow. I didn't do nothing, I swear! Paul screamed at whoever would listen. Nobody did. She was a little girl, you sick bastard. Some people yelled at him. Others merely spat and cursed him. I glanced from one face to another, hoping to find a friend. But they were all identical. Their expressions were nothing but scowls too big for their faces. They were all unnaturally smooth-skinned and pale. Realizing I was alone, I stepped forward to block the mob's exit. This time, I did take out my gun and shot one round into the air. 
there was a deafening explosion that shook the air. I hadn't smelled gun smoke in nearly 15 years. It smelled the same, like sulfur and urine. The mob finally stopped and stared. They slowly circled me. I felt vulnerable and claustrophobic in the small space. Let him go. Now. I glared at them. A few, too few, had the decency to look ashamed. Sheriff! Sweat ran down Paul's dark brow. Don't let them hurt me. I didn't do anything to a little girl. He still smelled like whiskey. It emanated from his pores. There was a look of absolute fear in his eyes. Get out of our way, Cruz. This is your only warning. Randy separated himself from the mob of the body like a puckered mouth. There was blood on his hands, and some smeared on his nose. Randy, please don't do this. I pointed the gun at him in warning. Now. Everyone nodded in unison. What are you going to do? Shoot all of us? He spread his arms like a preacher shepherding his flock. I didn't have a plan. If I started shooting, they would attack me, and I stood a good chance of dying like Henry. But I would get off a few shots before then. But was that really what I wanted to do? These were people I'd lived with for years. I saw them every day. I'd laughed with some of them, knew most of their names. They were people with families and children of their own. I would kill these people for what? Try to save an old drunk? Paul was innocent. I knew this in my heart. But innocence was something that counted for little. I lifted the gun higher. I had Randy in my sight. It would be so easy to try to end this madness right here. In my head, I could hear Paul's voice singing. The answer is blowing in the wind. In that soft, melodic way of his. I gave one brief look to Emily. Still rooted, dazed to her spot. And looked away. I lowered my gun. And stepped aside. The mob, waiting for the cue, pushed by me. They were all silent and stone-faced. Except for Paul, who struggled against the people hauling him forward, and then began to scream and sob when he saw what awaited him outside. I still hear those screams. They're with me when I close my eyes for too long. Carlos? Emily moved beside me and I put my arm around her. What's... Happening. Don't look. Those aren't our friends. They're strangers. I realized that the man at the gas station had never driven away. He was here in Tumble Peak that day as a shadow of a dead man swung back and forth like a pendulum in the early morning light. It was soon after that the state police finally showed. They were shocked by what they had walked into. The events that unfolded afterwards can be described as a shit show. After all was said and done, it can be summed up by saying that nobody was arrested because nobody would give blame, not even me. I knew in my heart who really had the blame. Retirement was heavily suggested for me. I didn't mind. Some people like the Sawyers and Emily packed up and left soon after. Marisol was one of them. 
She left the next day and never turned back. I gave her a hug and wished her good luck. I haven't spoken to her since. Most people expected me to leave as well. I saw it in the way they looked at me, unwelcomed. Nobody wanted to remember what had happened that early morning, and I was a living reminder. But I stayed. Over time, people disremembered. Or at least they became better at pretending. When reporters would come along, they would say they didn't see what happened that day and send them on their way with a scowl. Over time, reporters stopped trying. I never forgot. My hair has gone completely gray, and it hurt more every day to climb the slope of my driveway. But my mind is as sharp as ever, and my gun is still loaded. Someone, even if it's just an old man alone in a rest stop town off Route 240, had to remember that a stranger once crept through Tumble Peak. He's probably still roaring down the highway in that Mustang, enjoying the scenic route as he grins that malevolent grin of his, not knowing that if he should ever drive down this way again, an old man sits waiting for him. In our final tale, we're reminded of our friends from childhood. Those kids who had a profound effect on our lives, both in good ways and bad. And in this tale, shared with us by author Tyler Jones, a tragic event causes a man to be reminded of one of his friends and a time when they shared a very dark experience, one which might still have them closely linked all these years later. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Jeff Clement, Matthew Bradford, Jessica McAvoy, Aaron Lillis, Mary Murphy, and Sarah Thomas. So think back to younger days and try to remember those things long buried. Otherwise, you might be confronted with red hands. An old mugshot, a name, a face I haven't seen since junior high. The news anchor speaks while video shows a shopping mall. Police car lights strobe against the building and the windows. A brief glimpse of a sheet-covered mound in the back of an ambulance before the paramedic closes the doors. People are gathered in the street, huddled together, crying. Some are wearing clothes stained with blood. A woman with heavy makeup and bed messy hair speaks. I don't think there was a target. He was just shooting at everyone. <laughs> she wipes her nose with a tattered tissue. I couldn't hear anything but the gunshots. One after the other. When he stopped shooting and run off, that's when I heard people screaming. Another picture flashes on the screen. This one of a woman and two young children. A boy and a girl. 
The boy looks old enough to walk, but just barely. He smiles at the camera from his mother's arms, a stuffed animal clutched in one hand. The girl is older, her smile is missing some teeth. She stands there stiffly, arms behind her back, smiling like someone told her to smile, not because she's happy. Her narrowed eyes stare at the camera, as if upset at whoever's taking the picture. I hope the words don't appear, but they do. Awful words that make my stomach clench. Vomit rises in the back of my throat. I take a drink of whiskey to swallow it back. Four killed, 23 wounded in mass shooting at Westlake Mall. The news anchor says the police are hunting for the killer. They think he may have crossed state lines. The mugshot flashes on the screen again, this time with his name beneath it. Cameron Davies. A name that's been buried in the back of my memory since the year I smoked my first cigarette. Cameron was there when I did. We shared it. I took the first drag. He took the second and then passed it to Jessica Eastman, who passed it to Todd Wires, deep in the woods behind Jesse's house. The woods where she found the cave. The cave. My eyes search Cameron's face, that dead-eyed stare, dark skin under his red-rimmed eyes that look like he hasn't slept in a long time. Maybe not since that day at the cave. I try to find the boy I knew in that face, but it's long gone. The features are all there. The same rounded nose, the ears that stick out just a little too far, dirty blonde hair. But it's like looking at one of those pictures of a missing kid. The ones that show what the kid might look like as an adult. They're similar, but one is from the very real past, while the other is from some non-existent future. On the TV, a cop examines something on the window of one of the stores. I stop breathing. Splattered on the glass is a bright red handprint, dripping blood down to the white paint. My wife, Deirdre, looks up from her computer, tilts her head when she sees my face. Brian? I'm fine. Deirdre looks at the empty whiskey glass and sighs. Her hand moves to my face. A finger touches my skin and comes away glistening. Jessie found the cave in the woods one day after school, but she didn't go inside. Not until she rounded the rest of us up. Todd and I were the only kids in our sixth grade class whose parents were divorced. It gave us something in common, I guess, and we hung around with Jessie because her mom had died a few years earlier. Her dad loved her and tried his best to make up for what she didn't have. He used to throw these big sleepover parties where he'd invite all of us over, and he'd make popcorn and we would watch movies until the sun came up. But Cameron... Cameron had it the worst of all of us. He was small, for one thing. And even though we were all the same age, Cameron looked at least a grade younger. Small and frail, skinny arms, eyes that looked too big in his face. Cameron's mom and dad were... were both meth heads. In and out of jail, so he had to live with his crazy aunt in a shitty apartment behind the bar where Todd's dad drank after his shift at the lumber yard. I don't know what Cameron's aunt did for work, but whatever money she had went to buying all kinds of thrift store shit she didn't need. She'd go to garage sales every weekend and load up her car 
make Cameron carry the junk into the apartment. I only went inside a few times, and I had no idea people could live like that. Old magazines and newspapers stacked up to the ceiling. Piles of clothes bigger than the leaf piles we'd make around Halloween. Used, grease-stained kitchen appliances with frayed electrical cords. Cardboard boxes that smelled of dust and mildew stacked on top of each other to create rooms within the rooms. Cameron had his own bedroom, but it wasn't really his. All he had was a mattress on the floor in the corner. Piles of books, records, snow globes, and trinkets all loomed over him when he slept. A cat lived there, too, even though I never saw it. But I smelled its piss everywhere. Jesse came to my house first and told me she found something I had to see. She wouldn't say what it was, only that I needed to bring a flashlight. We rode our bikes over to Todd's house and begged his mom to let him come outside. She reluctantly agreed, and the three of us rode over to Cameron's. Even with all the shit his aunt had packed in her two-bedroom apartment, Cameron didn't even have his own bike, so he rode on my handlebars. Todd, Cameron, and I followed Jesse deep into the woods behind her house. I didn't have to ask what Jesse had been doing out in the woods. The wet dirt stains on her knees told me. Gray sunlight fell through the branches as we rode around the big, moss-covered rocks at the entrance of the path. Yellow and orange leaves carpeted the trail, making me think of the four misfits traveling down that yellow brick road to Oz. Like I said this out loud, and then Jesse wanted to know which one of us was Dorothy. We all laughed, but none of us said who it would be. I was with Jessie the first time she buried something of her mom's in the woods. It was just a simple bracelet, but something that her mom had loved. We walked deep into the trees, and then Jessie fell to her knees and started digging with her hands. Tears ran down her face as her fingers tore up the dirt until she'd made a small hole. She gently placed the bracelet in the hole and covered it up. Maybe she said this to me. Maybe to her mom. She never asked me to go with her again. But every once in a while I'd see dirt under her fingernails. And I'd know what she'd been doing. We knew the trail well. But Jesse made a sharp turn at a tree split and blackened by lightning. Then suddenly we were riding into unfamiliar territory. But Jesse knew exactly where she was leading us. I had to pedal hard just to keep up with her. We rode until the sky turned a darker shade of gray. And then Jessie skidded to a stop and jumped off her bike. She turned around, grinning, arms held out wide. Behold! She took a bow. The dragon's throat! When Jessie moved aside, we saw a dark, jagged hole in the rock behind her. A dirt tunnel stretched into the blackness. Strands of green vines hung down around the entrance like wet, tangled hair. Scattered all around the entrance were at least a hundred large stones, like they'd been blown right out of the dark hole. Todd let his bike fall to the ground. Whoa, did you go inside? Jessie shook her head. I think it goes back pretty far. If you stand near the opening, you can hear it. Echoes and wind. Cameron folded his arms across his chest, trying not to shiver. Do you think there are bats? Todd lifted his own flashlight from his belt and shined the light into the tunnel. 
He sniffed the air. It looks like it gets wider. Cameron couldn't stop his shiver this time. Jessie took a flashlight from her backpack and joined her beam to Todd's. The curved rock walls bent out of view, down into the darkness. There was no wind, but cold air moved from the mouth of the cave, as though it was breathing. You guys are ready? Cameron's voice shook like he was freezing cold. We're going in? We didn't come all this way just to look at it. Cameron looked at me with pleading eyes, but I wanted to go in just as much as the others. A cave in the woods, a dark entrance that led into the earth. What boy wouldn't want to see that? A boy who lived in a maze with walls made of junk other people didn't want, that's who. Todd, Cameron, and I lined up behind Jesse. We were all scared, but when I looked back into Cameron's face, he was terrified. Seeing Cameron's face on the news, my heart beats out of time. The heels of my feet go numb. The floor feels so far below me, I'm not sure if I'm actually touching it. I make my way through the living room and out to the back patio. A light snow falls from a cement-colored sky. I take a drink of whiskey from my refilled glass. I told Deirdre I'd quit, and I meant it when I said it, but sometimes life throws things out at you that just destroy all your plans. Tonight is like that. But still, she couldn't hide her disappointment. I take my cell phone out and thumb through the contacts. Jessie's number is still in there, but I can't call her. The year I got my driver's license, Jessie's dad had a breakdown. He got drunk one night and accused her of sneaking out of the house to screw around with boys. She tried to tell him that wasn't true, but her dad wouldn't listen. He went to his bedroom, got the 9mm from the closet and emptied it into Jesse's body. The newspaper ran a story the next day. The article said that when the cops arrived, Jesse's dad held up his hands, bright red with his daughter's blood, and shouted, Look at my hand. Look at it. The sun shone bright on the day of the funeral, and it felt so wrong to be standing there on such a beautiful day as our friend was lowered into the ground. It was also the first day I tried cocaine. Cameron gave it to Todd and me, said it would take the edge off. It did more than that. It tore through me, lifted me up. I've never forgotten that feeling. I take a drink and dial Todd's number instead. He picks up right away. It never left him alone. Brian, the cards were stacked against him from the beginning. He made choices. Did he? It comes out as a yell, even though I didn't mean it to. Can you tell me how his life would have gone if we hadn't... I don't believe in that anymore. The falling snow has a sound like someone moving in soft bed sheets. I don't think it matters. Cameron completely ripped his head apart with drugs. There doesn't need to be some other explanation. You could chart his path, Brian. 
It was all laid out for him. He just chose to stay on it. My hand grips the phone tighter. We need to go back. Check to see if the wall is still there. Are you serious? Check on the wall? Right. We're adults, man. You're talking about made-up kid shit. The wall, Todd. You remember? You brought salt because you said the devil can't cross salt. Brian, stop. I catch Deirdre watching me through the window. I brought holy water from St. Mary's and poured it all over the stones. You need to accept that Cameron is mentally ill. And Jess... Jess brought her mom's Bible, remember? She shoved it between the stones. We knew something was there and we tried to lock it in, but it didn't work. Todd doesn't say anything, but I hear him breathing. My phone is now slick with sweat. Do you remember who stayed over at Jesse's house the night before? I'm not getting into this with you again. The night before Jesse's dad murdered her? Cameron was there. Do you remember? Leave me out of this. And don't call me anymore. It really did feel like walking into a giant throat. Air moved through the dark tunnel, pushing and pulling us as we went deeper. Todd suggested we go single file with the person behind holding onto the waistband of the person in front of him. In case someone fell, he said. But what he really meant was, so no one gets lost. Jesse took lead, and I told Cameron I'd bring up the back so he could go in front of me. And as we made our way down the tunnel, I felt Cameron's body twitching with fear. I could feel his sweat, sticky skin quivering against my fingers. Every cough and footstep echoed. Water dripped from somewhere up ahead, but the noise bounced off the walls and came at us from all around. The ground got slick and wet. Our flashlights picked up the strange grooves of the walls, looking like the inside of a giant worm, and we were walking right through its digestive tract. The air, stale and musty, smelled of guano and moist dirt. Todd, that asshole. He sniffed the air and looked right at Cameron. Ugh. Smells like cat piss in here. Cameron stopped moving for a second. His shoulders slumped. Todd, shut the fuck up and keep moving. Cameron started making small noises when he breathed out. Little squeaks, just like a mouse. I did feel bad for him, but we were also going on an adventure. And being afraid just went with the territory. And going anywhere with Todd meant putting up with his shit. We followed the tunnel until we couldn't see the light of the entrance anymore. The air grew colder, heavier. The ground under my feet got steeper, and I had to walk carefully to keep from slipping in the wet clay. Cameron's legs went out from under him once. His whole body shook as I helped him back up, teeth chattering with cold and with fright. Finally, the tunnel leveled out, and our beams illuminated a round room. High above us, dripping stalactites hung from the ceiling like fangs. Another tunnel in the far wall led further down into darkness. Jessie swung her flashlight from the ceiling to the grooved walls. The round circle of light caught something on the stone. A faded painting that looked like those ancient cave drawings you see pictures of. 
took up one whole section of the wall. The four of us gathered closer to look. A series of human figures, drawn in rusted red, assembled around a creature that towered above them. Some of the humans bowed, others knelt with their arms lifted as if worshipping the figure, or begging for mercy. The creature's body was covered in thin, rounded protrusions. They stuck out from its arms and legs and sides. Five rose up from the head like a misshapen crown. At first, they looked like flames, but then I leaned in closer. Hands. Jesse stood next to me and reached out to touch the paint. Don't. Todd and Cameron came in next to us. Hands. The whole thing is made of hands. Red hands, one on top of the other, pressed onto the wall in the shape of a figure. A single hand, much larger than the other, made up the head. Two dark eyes drawn in the center. Streaks of red paint ran down the creature's body. Fingerprints smeared together. My flashlight beam kept going higher until it hit the ceiling. Holy shit. She pointed the flashlight up and spread across the rock above our heads was a massive mural made of red hands. Only these hands were twisted and bent. The fingers made shapes that looked almost human. Hundreds of them scattered around the same figure on the wall, the figure with the crown. These almost human shapes, some of them were torn apart, reaching out with bent arms toward the creature. How did they get it all the way up there? Something stirred in the corner of the ceiling. I shone my light in that direction and illuminated a pulsing mass of dark folded wings hanging suspended from the ceiling. Their eyes glowed in the light, bright and curious. A few detached from the rock and flew down, wings flapping. Cameron grabbed my arm. I don't want to be here anymore. Jessie lowered her light, went over to the other tunnel and yelled into it as loud as she could. Then she stepped back and smiled as her voice echoed down into the earth. Todd followed right behind her. Fuck! <laughs> we all laughed, except Cameron. I motioned to the tunnel, but he just bit his lip and shook his head. I shrugged, leaned my head into the hole and took a deep breath to yell when something came echoing back that was not Todd's voice. A deep, ragged sigh. There were whispers in that sound. Soft, hiss-like whispers that made every hair on my arm stand straight up. Warm air blew into my face. The rancid odor of rotting meat and sulfur. I took a step back, feeling the ground quiver under my feet. I looked to Jesse and Todd, and they were both staring at the hole with wide eyes. Jessie's mouth fell open like she wanted to say something, and then the stirring in the ground grew stronger. Another sound echoed from the tunnel, a scraping that started and stopped and started again. An image appeared in my mind so clear that I couldn't shake it. A creature sinking its claws into the wet clay and dragging its body up the tunnel. It was the sound my own body made when we played war in the woods. When I got down on the ground, an army crawled through the dirt and the dead leaves. Only this sound was bigger, heavier. I heard liquid running into a small puddle and 
turned to see Cameron standing at the wall with the painting of the creature. His arm was stretched out, one hand flat against the stone, his pale hand inside a red hand on the creature's leg. Cameron's whole body started convulsing. Drool ran from the corner of his mouth. Urine soaked the front of his jeans and pooled on the ground at his feet. I grabbed Cameron's shoulders, tried to steady him. His eyes looked at me, but I don't think they saw me. Jess? Todd walked backwards, keeping his flashlight trained on the tunnel. What the hell? Jessie moved in the opposite direction, toward the hole, her head flying at an angle, trying to see in further. She squinted into the dark, mouth open, the fingers of her hand opening and closing. I grabbed her arm and yanked on it. Jess, we need to get out of here. Something's wrong with Cameron. Jesse turned back around and saw Cameron. His eyes rolled back, showing nothing but white. The scratching and breathing in the tunnel grew louder, steadier. We need to go. The words barely left my mouth before Todd took off running up the main tunnel. Jesse came over and grabbed Cameron's arm. I took the other, and we half-carried, half-dragged him out of the room. A burst of warm air shot out of the tunnel behind us and hit our backs. The breathing noise followed, frantic and angry. We scrambled into the tunnel, feet slipping on the slick clay. One long, gravelly exhale came from right behind us, the wind of it moving my hair. The wind full of whispers in a language I couldn't understand. It wasn't in that tunnel anymore. It had entered the room. Jesse and I climbed, shouting for Todd to come back and help us, but we couldn't even see his flashlight. Cameron went limp in our arms, knees dragging on the ground, head hung. I hoped to God he wasn't dead. Jesse couldn't hold on to Cameron and keep her flashlight steady. The beam bounced all over the walls. The breathing sounded less like an animal now. In fact, it sounded very human. I glanced back quickly, but the tunnel behind me was pure black. The breathing didn't come closer, didn't move up the tunnel after us. It stayed in that round room. We kept clambering our way toward the cave entrance. My arms and legs burned. Cameron stirred and lifted his head, looked at me, and then at Jesse. The bouncing flashlight caught his wide eyes, his flared nostrils. Can you walk? His small chest moved fast. He panted like a dog. Cameron, can you walk? He tried putting his feet on the ground and taking a step, but the motion caught Jesse off guard and she tripped. Her flashlight fell to the ground. Her hands searched blindly until she found the flashlight. She flipped the switch. Nothing. I heard a bang against her palm. Still nothing. A stillness overtook the tunnel. Pressure built up that sucked air backwards from the opening, pulling it against our skin toward the round room behind us. My ears popped painfully. The breathing wasn't as heavy anymore. It was measured and calm, but still echoing loudly. I tightened my grip on Cameron's arm and tried to pull him up. All I could see was his outline on the floor. I could hear him breathing faster and faster. Come on, Cameron. Get up. But he didn't move, or couldn't. Jesse and I knelt next to him and started to lift his body when a rush of air came moving up the tunnel. Warm, living. It blew the hair back from my forehead. Ah! Cameron screamed once, then he was wrenched from my grip, his fingers dragging marks in the clay. His eyes caught mine and I saw them in absolute terror. 
right before his body was pulled backward into the darkness. Cameron! The warm air swirled around us, slowly going back down to where it had come from. I reached out for Jesse. Neither of us said it, but we both knew we couldn't go back for him. There was nothing we could do, and that tore my heart up. It felt so wrong. Cameron was gone, but if we went after him, we'd be gone too. Jesse and I turned around and began running, faster now without Cameron, and made our way toward the bright, burning light at the mouth of the cave. I park in the driveway outside Jesse's old house, abandoned since her dad went to prison. He'd left it in such a state of disrepair that no one would buy it. And after what he did to his daughter, no one even wanted to own the land. Some people want to own a house lived in by a murderer, but not this one. The moss-covered roof sags down into the leaning porch. The whole house tilts to the right, and the increased weight has blown out all the windows, cracked the siding. A rusted wheelbarrow sits upside down in the yard, its metal body punctured with bullet holes. I wondered if that's where Jesse's dad practiced, if he'd imagined faces when he pulled the trigger. Inside that house are so many memories. Todd was always a dick to Cameron, but at least he seemed happy among friends. The four of us on the floor in sleeping bags, Jesse's dad sitting on the couch behind us, the TV glowing with images of monsters and robots. Images that kept us terrified and excited late into the night. I can't help but wonder where Jessie would be now if she were still alive. She probably would have left town and invented something that everyone needed. Something the whole world was missing. I haven't walked this path since that day, but I still remember where to go. An invisible map drawn in my memory. The woods are thicker now. Undergrowth and brush has covered up most of the ground. I follow narrow deer trails deeper into the trees, and my pulse speeds up when I see the outcropping rising in the distance. The cold gray stone and snake-like vines, the furry moss that is spread over the surface like some alien virus. All the trees along the top are just black skeletons, leafless branches silhouetted against the cold sky. I get the strangest sense that the moments we lived in this small space of forest, those moments from years ago, they somehow linger, imprinted in the air, the particles around me. I keep thinking I see ghosts of our younger selves running down the path, faces pale, eyes wide, running from something none of us understood. I know it's probably just my memory aligning with the present, but I still feel like something's in these woods, watching me, evaluating. I step over a small pile of picked-apart bones, a deer, maybe, and enter the clearing. My hands start shaking when I see it. Tremors grip my calves and shiver up my thighs. Weakness bursts behind my knees, and I just want to collapse onto the ground. The cave entrance is a black, yawning mouth in the side of the outcropping. The stones that we'd piled up all those years ago, the wall we'd built to keep the evil inside... Those same stones have been stacked into a pyramid at the center of the clearing. Only this is a structure that should not stand. Instead of being built with the largest stones at the bottom, it's all inverted. The smallest stones form the foundation and get bigger the higher up it goes. I walk closer to the structure, 
It's taller than I am, defying gravity. I walk a circle around it, waving my hands to feel for wires, anything that might be keeping this thing upright. At the very top is the largest stone, long and rectangular. I know it's the largest because I remember it took all three of us to move it. Now it stands at the top of this upside-down pyramid, placed there vertically, attached at an angle by one corner. It's floating. The whole goddamn structure is floating. I blink once and keep my eyes closed, then press the heels of my hands against my eyelids. I press until white stars explode in my vision. When I open them, the pyramid is still there. The impossibility of it picks at my brain like a sharp piece of shale, digging into my consciousness. I reach out with one trembling hand. Whatever dwelt inside that cave broke free, and then built this to let us know that not even the laws of physics could keep it contained. My hand shakes more violently the closer it gets. The fingers distort, stretching, bending, looking like a TV with bad reception. The hand doesn't feel any different, but it looks like it's coming apart. Then my fingertips make contact with the cold stone, and there's a stillness in my head. The pyramid and the woods dissolve and vanish. An image comes into focus, clearer than any memory I've ever had. We're all there, Jesse, Todd, and me. We're young again, collecting all those scattered stones and piling them in front of the cave entrance. Todd says he thinks that someone else, maybe hundreds of years ago, maybe the Akama tribe, tried to build this wall once before, but it didn't work. It takes almost the whole day to stack those rocks up, until not even a bird could squeeze inside. When we finish, Todd takes the container of salt out of his backpack. He pours a thick line in front of the wall, then leads us in the Lord's Prayer. I sprinkle the holy water all over the stones and we say the prayer again. Jessie goes last. She takes out her mom's worn leather Bible, runs her fingers over the name embossed on the cover. She places it very gently on top of the wall. I'm ready to let this one go. We say the prayer one last time, the three of us standing shoulder to shoulder, believing that what we've done actually matters. I yanked my hand back. And the woods return. As soon as my fingers leave the stone, the pyramid shivers once, and I jump backwards just as the whole formation comes crashing to the ground. Several of the stones crack on top of each other, tumble off into the leaves. I'm on my back, looking up into the gray sky, into the rolling underbelly of the clouds. Drops of water fall on my face. I gulp in the air, my lungs filling and expanding. How? My hand scratches at the leaves on the ground. My fingers feel something. I grasp it and pull it up. It's weather-worn and covered in black mold, but I know what it is before I even set it down. The pages are yellow and torn, eaten through, but some of the words can still be seen. Red words. Words that Jesus said. 
When the evil spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesse and I came bursting out of the cave, falling over ourselves to get as far away from the entrance as we could. Todd stood near the trees, one arm across his chest, the other covering his mouth. He came running over when he saw us, helped us up from the ground. Where's Cameron? His voice was scared and full of something I later realized was shame. He had run out first, leaving the three of us to try to escape, leaving us to try to get out while also dragging our friend who was probably seizing. Did you leave him? Jesse suddenly stepped forward and shoved both hands into Todd's chest, knocking him down. We didn't leave him. He was taken. We could have gotten him out if you hadn't turned pussy and ran. Todd started weeping, silently at first. This is your fault! She clenched her hands into fists and started walking around the clearing, head twitching at every small noise from the woods. Jesse? Jesse, we need to get help. C call the cops. She started clawing through the dead leaves, brushing them aside until she found a long tree branch as thick as her arm. She stuck one end in the ground and then stomped her foot against it, snapping it in half. What she held up now looked like a sharpened club. What are you doing? When she looked at me, Jesse's face held more fear and pain than I knew it could. It was a look... I'd only ever seen on the face of an adult. Jessie held my eyes and I knew what she was doing. The guilt was burning there, almost as brightly as Todd's. Only Jessie intended to do something about it. She took off towards the mouth of the cave, stopping only to pick up a baseball-sized rock. I ran to get ahead of her and stood with my arm out. Jessie, just think about it for one second, okay? She lowered her head and moved to shoulder past me, but I pushed her back. Anger mixed in with all that guilt and fear in her eyes. If you go in, you're not coming back out. You know that. Think of your dad. Jessie's teeth ground together as she tried to stop her chin from shaking. She wanted to still be angry, but the momentum was gone. At the mention of her dad, water welled up in her eyes. The tree branch dropped from her hands. Her head fell, and I leaned my forehead against hers. I put my hand on the back of her head, held her closer, and let her cry. We sat in the clearing, not saying much of anything, until the sky turned a darker shade of gray. Todd stood up and brushed the leaves from the back of his jeans. He started walking the tree line, hands deep in his pockets. Guys, we really need to call the cops. We're wasting time here. 
Jesse sat directly in front of the cave, watching it like it was a mouth that might suddenly bite down and swallow us whole. Her whole body jerked when we heard a sound like a bag of cement being dropped on the ground. Jesse got up and crept closer to the entrance. A hand went to her mouth. Jesus. Jesus, Bri, get over here! I jumped up and ran over to her and saw what looked like a matted piece of yellow fur on the floor just inside the cave. His body just appeared. Like something tossed him here. Jessie took the flashlight off her belt and shined it into the black hole. The matted fur was connected to a motionless body, lying face down in the dirt. While Jessie held the light, I went to the body and gently rolled it over. Cameron's eyes stared up, unblinking. I took a step back, trying to think of what we would tell the cops, our parents, when I noticed Cameron's chest rising and falling. Guys! He's still breathing. Jesse grabbed his arms, I grabbed his legs, and we carried him out into the dying light of dusk. Cameron looked up at the sky, at the foggy light of the moon, and spoke. There are thoughts in my head that aren't mine. I walk back to my car in the dark. I start the engine and tear out onto the road, wanting miles between me and that cave. I pull out my phone and call Todd again. It goes straight to voicemail. Leave a message and I'll get right back to you. I know you don't believe anymore. Please, be careful. The headlights of an oncoming car float into the dark like two eyes. The wall... The wall isn't where we left it. It's real, Todd. All of it is real. My thumb hovers over the red button to end the call, and then I say again, please, be careful. I hang up the phone and take a deep breath. Oh, Cameron, you haven't been alone since the cave. And it's crowded in there now, isn't it? All those thoughts that were never yours, too many voices talking all at once. The house is mostly dark when I pull into the driveway. The curtains are all still open, and a single light glows in the living room window. Maybe Deirdre fell asleep and forgot to close them. At my front door, I slip my key into the lock, but it turns easily like the deadbolt wasn't locked at all. The door opens onto a dark entryway, and a small alarm starts going off in the back of my head. Deirdre? Honey? Are you awake? The car keys clink together loudly as I move them from one hand to the other. My footsteps echo down the hall, 
Deirdre? My voice comes out through a tightened throat. I start down the hall to the living room. There's a smell in the house, subtle but distinct. Liquid copper. My stomach lifts inside me, pushes up into my chest. Deirdre? The smell gets stronger the closer I get to the living room. The light I'd seen from the driveway is a knocked-over lamp casting a slanted beam against the wall. It makes the room feel so different. A carnival version of where I live. Deirdre? Deirdre? Her name keeps tumbling out. I taste salt on my lips. I feel a chill pass over me as tears run down my skin. A chair lies on its side. A shattered glass on the floor. The clock on the mantel ticks as loud as a hand knocking at the door. The TV is still on, tuned to the local news. Its blue glow pulsing through another color. Something darker. I can't stand. My legs don't work. I collapse to the floor and stare at the large, bloody handprint on the TV screen. It's still wet. Still dripping. Todd's face appears behind him. The picture on his business card. Local real estate agent Todd Wears was gunned down outside a restaurant earlier this evening. Police are still searching for Cameron Davies, the suspected Westlake Mall shooter, in connection with this killing as well. I put my forehead to the floor and try not to vomit. I scream my wife's name knowing she won't answer. Deirdre! I know it is certain as I know Cameron didn't come out of the cave alone. I get back up, take a step, trip, brace myself with a hand to the wall. The furniture goes blurry. My feet, so far below me, weigh as much as that stone on the pyramid. How much time? How much distance between then and now? I want to go on, but I don't want to see it. Drips of blood lead to the bedroom little red splashes in a crooked line. I flip on the light and step inside. The tears I've been holding back come pouring out. The room is empty, but there's a puddle of blood soaked into the carpet. Red is all over the wall in a pattern. Handprints, one on top of the other, making the shape of a tall figure wearing a crown crown made of red fingers. My knees come unbolted. A cold fire courses through my chest and into my arms. Come back. The image seems to say. Come back. I swallow back the fear and run out of the house. I get in the car and take off down the street. I can't feel my hands on the wheel. Blood rushes through my head as heat spreads up my neck. I pray. I pray she's still alive. And I keep praying as the car tears through the dark. Headlights shining on the black asphalt of the road. That will take me back to the start.
Thank you for joining us on our journey down the Lost Highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream tonight. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media, Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, 